Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband, Rick, travel throughout the land in their new trailer that they have nicknamed Bessie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. For the past few years, they have been filming a documentary entitled The Holstein Dilemma, Heritage Breeds and the Need for Biodiversity, which will be coming out this fall. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews. Hi, this is Alara. Welcome back to our podcast. If you've been listening to our adventures for the last year and a half, you probably know that we like to take notice on the holidays here in the U.S. and abroad. Since this podcast is being released on Labor Day, of course, we can't let that go by without remarking on it. For those of you not familiar with this American holiday, it's observed on the first Monday in September. It's an official federal holiday that started on the federal level in 1894, although many states have been celebrating it for years before that. It was set aside to remember and honor the American labor movement, as well as the work of laborers over our history and their contribution toward developing our country. Canada also celebrates their Labor Day on the first Monday of September, although they put a U in theirs. Of course they do, eh? Because that's what they're about. But as usual, our populace remembers the really important things on this day. For many, it's really the unofficial day of summer. The school semesters usually start up around this time, and the high summer travel season ends, and you can finally get rates on hotels where you don't have to take a mortgage out to stay the night. Lots of sports leagues like the NFL and the NCAA start up their seasons, and the U.S. Open tennis tourney happens around this time in Flushing Meadows, New York, so everyone goes outside to sit in the heat and watch the play. And in our other usual pattern, those not watching sports often go out shopping. Because there are crazy Labor Day sales going on at this time, too, which usually is responsible for this day becoming the second biggest shopping day of the year after Black Friday. Okay, so that's probably enough gentle poking at the American culture. Here's the part where you're probably expecting a deep and meaningful dialogue here from me about what it means to me and about the contributions of the everyday laborers here. Okay, that definitely is something that comes up in my mind on this holiday but it's not the first thing I want to talk about this year. As we mark this day, I want to talk about the thing that my mind really dwells on as Labor Day approaches, fashion and politics. And not because it's a big election year or because the red carpet shows have been put off. Nope, it's all about my mom and the very proper cutoff rule that says wearing white after Labor Day is a serious faux pas. Now, you might remember that back in May, we did a podcast on the San Diego Seed Company. And in that one, I mentioned my mom's youthful decision to move from the very proper East Coast to the wild swinging West. Or at least that's how it may have seemed to many people in the 1950s. But while my mom really thrived in the West, there were some things that were pretty much cemented in her psyche. And even after years and years in California, one thing she just plain could not bring herself to comfortably do was work white after that magic day in September. I don't want to give you the wrong idea. My mom wasn't overtly disapproving of things like that with her California-born brood, and it really only showed when we'd dress up to go to church or go to a prom or a restaurant or something. 
She wouldn't have survived in Southern California if she didn't have some kind of relaxed flexibility because it truly is that kind of laid-back place. But you could just see the painful wince on her face when we'd step over the line on that roll, kind of like that irritating buzz in the background that you just can't ignore. Honey, don't you think your tan shoes would go better with that outfit? That kind of thing. She wasn't a big fashionista, but she was tailored, preppy, Jackie O, that kind of dresser at heart. But in my opinion, I don't even think the Labor Day cutoff was truly about the clothing so much either. I think it was about tradition and being proper and staying true to those traditions that are inserted into our younger brains and become concrete. Because when you've done things a certain way for a long time, it's hard to move away from that. Some things just aren't done. Like the shoes, some things just become ingrained over time. Usually there was a reason for the thing in the first place. And that thing may or may not exist anymore, but it sure goes against the grain to do things any differently. Maybe people didn't wear white because if you've ever been to an area that has actual weather, you know that you just plain cannot keep things clean in the winter. Kind of like me and getting dressed for work. I've learned not to put on a shirt until right before I leave because if I do, it'll end up with coffee on it if it's light or toothpaste on it if it's dark. Okay, not quite the same thing as a coating of winter mud in New York, but you get the picture. There's often a pretty good reason we do things in a certain way. But then sometimes, some people like to break the mold a little, mix it up, live dangerously, try something new. In this metaphor, in my world, that means wearing navy and black at the same time. Ooh, living life in the fast lane. Okay, so I'm still not able to do that with black and blue. I do have my limits. But if you're wondering where this comes in, in the world of agriculture, we learned early on in our documentary that there are big, huge piles of steaming verbal manure that lurk when you talk about heritage breeds, and not in the field. The whole idea of traditional breeds and new breeds and where the two meet is a really controversial conversation in many places. People can have very different ideas and be very passionate about them and about the best way to do things. The topic in the heritage breed world can be very controversial, very political, very traditional, very groundbreaking, and very messy. We'll give you some examples. So you want to know where the Buckeye Chicken got its start? It was due to the efforts of a real trendsetter in Ohio, a female, no less, named Nettie Metcalf. She decided that she wanted a nice dual-purpose chicken in her farmyard that could dodge hawks and would lay dependably, wasn't lazy, that would forage well, and wasn't so scrawny that there was nothing to go in the pot. So she started mixing ingredients over time. Buff Cochin, Barred Plymouth Rock, Black-Breasted Red Game, and a few other things. And after a bit of tinkering, this breed absolutely took off and became a true must-have accessory. Not only did it do the things she wanted, but rumor has it that this chicken is absolutely hell on wheels on mice in the barn. As in, catches and eats mice to rival a cat. I kid you not. So, how fantastic is that mix? And Nettie is also the title holder for creating the only American chicken breed that came into being entirely from the efforts of a woman. Heaven forbid. In the late 1800s, that was probably a pretty fashion-forward thing to do. But people may not have been quite so keen on the dilution of the other breeds that Nettie put into the mix, or even mixing them at all. And that's still an issue, with opinions on both sides of the table. 
Here's Dr. Tom Whiting of Whiting Farms in Delta, Colorado, in response to some of the things people have said about the mixing part. I take a different perspective on the breeds of chickens and whatnot because I understand that all breeds of chickens, all varieties, came from combinations of other ones. And the way domestic breeds often happen are mutations occur. Mutations happen all the time. Most of them are unseen or they don't have any effect on them, but in the case of plumage color or patterns or feathers on their head or on their feet or whatnot, Somebody who's breeding those birds or where the mutation happens say, well, there's some beauty in this new trait or there's some utility in it. So they go about the process of isolating, stabilizing, perpetuating that mutation. And so they make a breed around it, you know, feathered heads and what like that. And so that becomes a standard. And all breeds of chickens or cattle or what cats or anything are just these reconglomerations of mutations that have occurred. So I don't think there's anything sacred about a breed just because it's a registered in the standard of perfection and people want to make an altar to it. I think they're, they're just a little statement in time of what people thought was pretty or utility, whether it's dual purpose or an egg-laying bird or a show bird or whatnot. So I feel we have license, or the poultry breeders of the world, to make new breeds or enhance the old ones. So I, that's what I did with the Whiting Blue. Instead of having just a, an Americana, we made one that has some genetic backgrounds and some top layer, commercial layers in there, so they have greater egg production, feed efficiency, internal quality, eggshells, and robustness. And so that's a better thing to offer people. So I think that's good. There's nothing wrong with these sacred old breeds that are you know, well-established, the Barred Plymouth Rock, and the Silver Gray Dorking, and all these things that's well and fine, but there's no reason not to make new ones. So I've been working on making new breeds, which I hope over time will be equally liked, but they, people can modify them to their own desire later on. I'm not going to fuss about it. Dr. Whiting sounds like he poo-poos the traditionalists, but that's not 100% true. I've been told by those in the know that Dr. Whiting is responsible for not only saving a chunk of the existing poultry breeds in North America, but he's also bringing back breeds that have suffered from neglect by restoring the characteristics they were known for in the first place. He's got the knowledge and the resources to do it amongst his 80,000 other chickens, and no, that was not an exaggeration. And there's probably not as much money in that part of things as there is in selling feathers. He pretty much supplies 80% of the world fly fishing market with poultry feathers for fly tying. And how's that for covering the market? When you have a breed, but it's been tweaked a little, it might look the same, but it's often genetically nowhere near the original. And if you want to make sure the thing you're raising is actually the thing you're raising, that can make a big difference. So there's a term for it that's helpful to know. Improved. Now that sounds like a disparaging term at first, but it makes sense. There's the original breed and the improved breed. Take the fundamentals and tweak them a little for what you want. But make sure people know the difference. Uh, the, the traditional Texas Longhorn that went up the trails in the 1800s, they were a leaner, rangier kind of animal. They were long legs, very clean underneath. Uh, without a lot of skin to get caught in underbrush and thorns that was prevalent in Texas. Uh, they, um, their horns have a twist. Uh, they, they grow out of an oval shaft, sort of like people with wavy hair versus people with straight hair. 
Straight hair comes out of a, a round shaft, grows straight. Wavy hair comes out of an oval shaft, so it does this as it grows. Well, that's what happens with, with the longhorns, with the, the twisty horns. The females have the, the prettiest twist or the steers because they lack that testosterone that's going to make the, the horns come out for fighting because that's what they were for for the bulls. Uh, the, the strongest survived. They got to breed. And um, the, there, it has become popular over the last, well, actually over the last 40 years to cross the traditional cattle with African genetics to get a larger horn. They get a larger base if you cross them with African cattle. Um, they'll get a larger body if you cross them with European cattle. A lot of that was driven by the show ring because the larger, beefier animals were judged by the beef judges, so they would win. So people started breeding for that bigger body, not realizing that they were changing the breed and taking away some of those really desirable characteristics like calving knees. <laughs> you don't want a huge calf. And when you start having hobby breeders uh, with contest measuring tip to tip and the ones with the widest horns win, that's not a longhorn. That's a composite breed that has value in itself, but it is not, um, it was not made by, ma by nature, and you're going to lose some of the valuable characteristics that the heritage breed has to offer. You saw our, our bull out here. He's got those horns that go out like this, and I think those are like 80-some uh, inches tip to tip, you know, seven feet long from tip to tip. When we first got into this, uh, 60 inches was the thing. If you got a bull that had horns that went over 60 inches, that was good. Now a 60-inch bull isn't going to sell. You got to have over 70, and you really got to have over 80. But you're you're a breeder. Do you think that's good or bad? You're also a historian, so this is in a way different from what longhorns classically were. Well, you see, I also like to sell my longhorns. <laughs> And you aren't going to sell, you aren't going to get good money for a longhorn that doesn't have big horns. I think it's getting to be a little overblown. I think it's getting to be too big. And everybody wants lateral horns, the horns that go out like that. And uh, like that one cow we have down there, her horns go up and go around and kind of curl. They, that's pretty. I like that. Now, in, in Frank Doherty's time, I'll bet the horns weren't, weren't, weren't two feet from tip to tip. And they were, they came out, they came out of the head like this, went up and went back. They were the, they were the, in the, the scrawniest cattle. If you had a cow like that and tried to sell her, you'd never sell her in, the, in today's market. The Longhorn is a great example, as I have to say that those big horns and the beefy physique are really showstoppers. I'm sure that somewhere at the 1900s National Western Stock Show, somebody used a phrase something like, you really improved that scrawny longhorn cow. But this is where I also say that while I might admire the sheer mass of both beef and horn, 
if I had to raise cattle in the middle of Texas or New Mexico or California or anywhere, I didn't want to have constant husbandry and help. I think I'd be buying the old version. CTLR Longhorns is what they call that breed that still exists in the non-improved stage. But it's in trouble because everyone wants new Coke instead of classic Coke. Thrifty on water and feed. Doesn't get tangled up in the brush. Great at chasing the coyotes and unwanted cowboys away. Doesn't pass out from exhaustion quickly in nasty searing heat. And drops calves without my help, thank you. It just seems useful to me. So that's the kind of beef I would buy to start my ranch. This concept also applies to the plant people, in case you're thinking that the breed thing only applies to animals. For those of you who live in San Diego, we're big fans here of the improved Meyer lemon. That was one of the three fruit trees that my dad probably loved as much as he loved his children. Maybe more so considering that only one of his girls had kids and all three of those fruit trees produced like mad. Here's what Carrie Fowler, a Svalbard seed bank fame, has to say. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people think that all of our food in the supermarket's GMO today, but actually, you know, relatively small amount of it is. So um, in the past, what we're really talking about in terms of a traditional variety versus a GMO variety are uh, the techniques used for pollination and breeding. <laughs> That's about it. So in the past, um, you would take pollen, you might even use a paintbrush, literally, and get the pollen from one flower, deposit it on the, on, on the uh, flower of another plant, harvest the seed from that second plant, and you'd have a, a breeding, <laughs> father and the mother. Um, and so that was, that was pretty traditional. Or the bees would do the work. They'd go from one flower to the next, and they'd do it, and you'd save the seed, and that would be traditional. Um, today, with, um, with modern science, we have the, the ability to pinpoint particular genes that can be moved uh, in a high-tech way from one plant to another, and that, that essentially makes a GMO. Now, technically, we may be moving the same genes that the bee will move, <laughs> or that I might move with the paintbrush, but the fact that we're moving them um, using these, um, uh, these genetic techniques is, makes, it a, makes it a GMO. So GMO technology has the, has the ability of of either doing exactly the same thing we've been doing all, all along uh, throughout agricultural history for 12,000 years, or um, the possibility of transferring genes from one um, species, a different species, to another, even a very unrelated species. By the way, we do transfer genes regularly and routinely from species to species. There are more than a hundred species of wheat and nobody's concerned about whether there's a gene from one species of wheat going to another. I'm not talking about varieties, that's a different thing. There are probably 200, 300,000 different varieties of wheat, but separated out into um, you know, a certain number of species. Not too many people are concerned about gene flow within those, those species, but uh, with, with um, genetic techniques you can potentially move genes from um, far-flung species into those, um, um, those plants. And then there's the part where all parties want to keep a breed a breed and not mix it with anything outside, but it starts to change over time anyway. When you select within your breeding stock for certain characteristics, 
over time, that'll impact what comes out of the chute. So we like the idea of steers becoming working animals. And we love the idea of the history of the American Milking Devon. And so we uh, purchased a um, bull uh, from uh, George Washington's farm at Colonial Williamsburg. And uh, his name was Cinco de Mayo, so he was born on the 5th of May. He has great heritage. You can see he has a very straight back. He has a strong head. He has a great rump. And so I, I grew up as a, in a stock breeder in Nebraska and very much interested in uh, animals' uh, confirmation and so on, especially cattle. So this is different than the, than the East Coast milking Devon. Uh, they tend to be much, much, uh, we, we were interested in their strength and their uh, uh, con confirmation basically. And the, this is another picture that shows, this is Jesse, we, we nicknamed our bull Jesse James because both Paul and I went to the University of Missouri. And so this is the bull at 10 years old. This is uh, one of our oxen, one of the oldest oxen, Davy, that you'll see today pulling the wagon. Davy is only four years old in this picture. They uh, will grow until they're eight years old. So he's already bigger than the bull at four years old when the bull is finally growing. So that's the reason you castrate and make a steer out of a bull, is to produce a bigger animal, more meat, and that's what basically becomes our steaks and hamburgers and other kinds of things, is the steer of the animal. If the milking Devon, they have three purposes. Their meat is very lean, their milk is high in butterfat content, about 4%, and the steers grow up to be excellent oxen. Sometimes, if that goes on long enough, it becomes a whole new thing. And that happened in the 1950s, when the Devon cattle people here in the U.S. had a fundamental difference as to which purpose of the tri-purpose thing was most important. They got smart about it and started to call them beef Devons and the other ones American milking Devons. Improve away, just call them something different. But I have to say, I see both sides of this thing. I'm really a traditionalist at heart, but I see the practicality of new ideas and new things for new needs. The world is a changing place, after all, and we'd better change along with it. We just have to remember not to throw out the old things when making the new, or you can never make anything new again without an amazing amount of work, and a time machine, and one of those science labs in Jurassic Park that reconstitutes things out of amber. I'm just saying. Next week, we'll bring you a podcast from someone who has to deal with this conflict between tradition and improvement constantly. We hope you'll join us. I had a 1985 Northgate OmniKey Ultra keyboard until about two years ago, and it was the finest clicky keyboard made then and since. I finally had to separate from that love of my life two years ago when my connectors from PS2 to USB and USB to Firewire were finally too much for my operating system to handle efficiently. And I still miss that big hunk of metal sitting in front of me. I still miss it. It was solid metal, and I had a pencil tray built in, damn it. And it had 20 different special function keys to map macros, which my nephew seems to think is a new thing in the keyboard universe. Wonderfully clicky and perfect tension. Damn it.
Northgate going out of business is like the cancellation of Firefly all over again. Best damn keyboard ever made. And the used ones still go for 80 bucks on eBay. Hey, maybe I'll take it off the spot on the wall where I have it framed and try to make it work again with my computer. Who needs a damn Windows key anyway? Maybe four connectors isn't too much for the new version of Windows. It is Labor Day after all, so maybe I'll work on it. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. This is how we keep going. And please tell your friends to join us. Please feel free to post any questions or comments that you might have to our social media sites. Our Twitter feed is at Backyard Green Films, spelled B-K-Y-R-D-G-R-E-E-N-F-I-L-M-S. Our Instagram is at Backyard Green Films, B-A-C-K-Y-A-R-D-G-R-E-E-N-F-I-L-M-S. Our Facebook is Backyard Green Films. Our YouTube URL is youtube.com Backyard Green Films. We'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us today. Tom Whiting from Whiting Farms, Debbie Davis from DWD Longhorns, John Nelson from Clover Bloom Ranch, and Raleigh Johnson from Three Eagles Ranch. You can find all the links to their websites and more information about them on our information page for this podcast. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films Productions, all rights reserved, copyright 2020.